This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Uh, I, today we, we saw um, some of the uh, Gdole Hasidus and so on. I'd like to talk about Hasidus in Hungary and what was unique about it and so on. So, in 1735, Rabbi Sol Shentov started to become known. I guess that's sort of given as the year of his his gallows when he became known and people heard of him and so on. 1735. It was Ukraine. Ukraine. Ukraine actually not that far from that area. Carpathian Mountain area and so on. And what? Not so far from where we were. Further that corner over there. Now, he himself was, I guess, an enigma because each of his Talmidim, or even the third generation of Talmidim, were very different. There was a common denominator, but very different. And each country took, I guess, got the type of leader, Hasidic leader, that they needed, wanted, or, or didn't want, but that's what happened. So Hungary did not have much of Hasidus. It's surprising. But Hungary did not have many Hasidic forces in the beginning. For, for a long time, it was sort of somnolent. It, 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 was, it was quiet. There was not, not much Hasidic stuff doing. The first, the, the first Hasidic Rebbe was the Caliber. Now, there are Hasidic stories where Rebbe Shantov came down into Hungary and he helped people and started somehow I, I don't know. Those are stories that you know. I, I have no way of, of, of you know vouching, not vouching. They're all, but tachlis. What's what we know basically? What's there is the Kalver Rebbe, and his story is very typical of what would happen. Most, like we said before, most of the people living in that area were farmers, not terribly learned, and simple folk. They actually were very typically like 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 everybody else. The Kalver Rebbe was born, and he was. A shepherd of ducks. I don't know what they call them. I'm not sure what a duck person is, but he—that was his—and it was. <laughs> he, they, they, he raised them. He raised ducks. Yes, he was one. The, sorry. Geese, geese, or, or ducks, whatever. I, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, it was. It was a very heavy, and he was a typical boy, and one of the Hasidic. Um, Rebus, Rebleib Saras, did used to come to, he wandered around, he discovered him and felt that he was a very special neshama. He took him back to Reb Shmelka in Nicholsburg in Moravia and that's where he learned by, was raised by and came back to Hungary later to open up a Hasidus. Now to get a sense of what the issues were and, and, and what was going on, one of the big problems was people had become, they kind of became like their neighbors. And dancing, mixed dancing, especially at weddings, was very common. Um, they would put a, they have a big ring of men and women, they'd have square dancing of men and women. That was common. What it, he became the Rebbe, the Kala Rebbe, and he made a law. He, be, he was very popular, people liked him, he was warm, he was very musical. And he made the gunim, and we'll talk about two of them in a minute. And he made a law that anybody who gets married, 
he has to be Masada Kedushin and be Masameach personally at the wedding. And you couldn't marry two people at one time in one night because, you know, he needed to be there. He would come at the weddings, he would compose the gunim, he would sing and play, and he would, and he would organize the dancing the way he saw fit. And that's how he sort of got things right. His, his type of approach was very folksy. Um, so, for instance, Hasidus in Poland took on a very sharp intellectual bent, where there was Pshischa, Kutsk, etc. It, it took on a very folksy type of um, Hasidus. It, it was like the classical storybook Hasidus. And he took shepherd Hungarian folk tunes and made them into Jewish songs. He has two very famous songs. What? He made them. He 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 converted. He 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 was Megayer then. <laughs> um, it's it's like uh, there's expression in 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 um, in Yiddish Hebrew that people are kind of with Shini Hashem or with Shini Mais, like people work over somebody else's material. One song is very famous and it became like almost the anthem of his group and all on the Hungarian cinema. It's called Sola Kokush. It, it has a very, it's a very powerful, moving song. If you don't know Hungarian, it's very, it's very moving. The words basically means the sun is up, the hen is crowing, the geese are walking about. That's that's the flavor. Of, that's those are the words that the words are. They re, they sort of gave it the air of meaning. The Priya's waking up. Rebbeinu Shalom, Lama Zaftanu, where are you? Come. So he took a type of song that was very, very um, folk song, and he and he um, t- used the, the same type of tune, and the words are the same. And and when Hungarians get together, that when that genre get together and sing it, very powerful, very very. People like singing together. It is very. I, I unfortunately for you, or unfortunately, I can't sing, so I'm not going to even try to sing it. But but if you ever if you ever download it, you'll go. You'll download it. It's a very beautiful and powerful song. But the words are very. It's a type of stuff a farmer would type would sing and and, and so on. The second song of his that's very famous is, it's it's a it's a love song, um of a, uh, a again a, a a simple farmer. It goes. Far as far as how big are you? My rose, my rose, you're all lost in the forest. Where are you? If the forest is small, I'd find my rose and so on. He interpreted it, so he had that stanza. And then the next stanza was, Gullus, Gullus, you are so vast. Shchina, shchina, you are so small. If only the forest was a little was a little more scattered, I'd be able to find you. And a whole bunch of stanzas, again, using the type of natural music and folk and giving it that type of meaning. So the Kalover um, was that first Hasidus, and it was the simple folk Hasidus, taking natural motifs of nature, people, the type of song, and bringing it into Kedusha, like he did with the dancing and so on and so forth. The second person who, who came to Hungary to found the Hasidus, so the Kalover was born, there isn't. There is a Kalava dynasty. One of them is still at Mayavestrim. Again, I don't think they're direct descendants. They're sort of great nephews of sorts. One of them lives now at Israel. He he is a very he unfortunately has no children, but he has 
he does a lot of activities. He goes and speaks in places. He founded to memorialize the Holocaust for from people, and he's made books on it, two books on it, stories. He comes when he speaks. He also sings. A very, very um, folksy type of rebel, like you expect. Is he the one without the beard? Yes, he's the one without the beard. The other one, he must be in his mid-90s, easy. The other one is in America. He was a very, the one in America is a very, um, he worked with youth a lot. He spoke at us at our yeshiva, and he dealt with young people a lot and their problems. He unfortunately has Lou Gehrig's disease, and he is basically immobile, but he still runs around being the car of people and reaching out to people. That's Kalam. The next one was what we saw this morning was the um, Rav Teitelbaum, the Ismach Moshe. He himself was a big, a big, um, he was a misnagid. Galicia, grew up in Galicia, was a misnagid, was a Talmud Chacham, became influenced by the Chozob Lublin, became a Rebbe, and came to Hungary to establish a Hasidus. He did similar things, very different than him. No, well, well, many rabbis, Rabbi Tzadik Cohen, were misnagdim. They met whoever was, they met the match, and somebody convinced them, and they turned around. Um, it, it, it didn't happen much the other way, but but it did happen that way. So, um, you know, that was the, he became known as a very big tzaddik. Now, his, his personal Seder Hayom, his personal day looked like this. He woke up five o'clock in the morning always. He would have shiurim. He would he would drink a little wine and cake. Would dab until two three in the afternoon. Receive people who needed brachas. Have another share. Daven until midnight. And after midnight, we have his first meal of the day. Um, that was his seder yom. And, and yes. Uh, yes, uh, you know, waking up five in the morning is difficult, but it's a lot more difficult when you and and you know he, he was a recognized Talmud Chacham by 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 everybody. However, his big activity for helping people was kameis, which means that he would write amulets and give it to people in need of a bracha, and he would say he would write the amulet and he would say. I'm giving it to you because the Rebbein Shalom can help you, and this is how he's going to help you. Now, he felt, because these were simple people, th- th- this was the type of thing they were into. It's it's a very, very um, mystical type. People were into it. This is this is Carpathians. This is what people think. The Lahav the Goyim thing like that. He needed to give them charms, amulets, or something, and use that as a vehicle to get them to be a lot more you know, religious. Look, Hashem is helping you, and here it is. It met opposition. First of all, the memory of Shabzai Tzvi was fresh. Shabzai Tzvi was 200 years before that. It was the 1600s. And we'll see in Prague when we get to there that it's a very important. It smelled too much of, you know, a, a kind of abracadabra stuff. And there was this nagdus to it. And people spoke out against him. And, and they pushed back against it. Not his folks people. His folks people like this type of stuff, but the people of Slovakia. There, there are um, two 
um, Tshuva's written the Chassam Sofer, and we'll see tomorrow, Mr. when we speak more about the Chassam Sofer, was, who was the key person in, in that part of Hungary. Chassam Sofer tolerated, but he was very annoyed with the amulet stuff, and he was annoyed with one more thing. They had a Chumrah by many Hasidim, but he was one especially, not to wear any wool garments because they couldn't check for Shatnas. Those days the checking for Shatnas was kind of primitive, and you had to trust the guy that he's not going to put any flax in it. So there were too many issues with it, and he passed, but he said the following. Rav Teitelbaum, the, the, the first one, Rav Teitelbaum, the first. And he said, you, anyone who davens Nusach Sfard, Nusach Sfard is a very holy Nusach, and it doesn't, it's allergic to wool. And if you daven Nusach Sfard, you cannot wear wool garments, except for a talus, obviously. Yes, he said it has a special kedusha and it doesn't tolerate wool begotten. Now, the Chassam Sofa wrote a tshuva on it, and his, the tshuva goes like this. He was very annoyed with that formulation. And he said, first of all, they didn't like the Dabnus Asfar as a change. He said, halachically, you can be so much on wearing wool clothing. It's a small chash. If somebody wants to be machmir and wear only linen clothing, that's a very worthy chumrah for somebody who's holding there, and that's fine. But to say that it has something to do with Nusach Sfarad is absolute rubbish. And peddling rubbish is not something we should do. So with all due respect, nice to, 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 to be machmer. You want to have Nusach Sfarad, okay. That anyone has sex with the other one, it's it's absolute nonsense. He wrote it quite, at, for some sofa, it was quite sharp when he wrote it. And there was some tension. There was some sort of unhappiness with it. But that was the type of, of thing. Those were the two early rebbes. And Kalev, very little remained of it. It sort of was a folk Sivsidus. Teitelbaum became eventually his grandson. His grandson was very famous. His great grandson, nephews, Atzichaim, different different branches. And the Satma Rebbe is like a fifth or sixth generation from those Teitelbaums. They met him. Now, besides that, there was. Um, one other Hasidus that took that took hold in Hungary, and that was Munkac. Munkac comes from Dinevayikas, but they became a lot more, and 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 Munkac and and Rapaiman became famous for being Kanaim. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Kanaim. What? Kanaim. Now there was two more Hasidic, two or three more Hasidic courts that had a lot of influence. The Divrechaim Galicia from Sanz. He influenced a lot of people, sent Rabbanim, but there was never a court officially. Um, the Rechaim did. What? No, Sanz was Galicia, but they influenced. In other words, there was traffic, there were people coming and going, and finally, um, Bells had, because they were close to Galicia, they sort of had Rabbanim who might be Belzers and, and things of that nature. What vision is. Now, some of the things that were unique about Hungarian Hasidus. So part of the Hasidus became extreme Kanoim. Um, Satma and Munkach held that Satma is to the left of him and he was to the right of Satma, believe it or not. They, what? Again? Again? Munkach, Munkach, right yes. He said, 
he said that the fact that the Sapa Rebbe is anti-Zionist raises a doubt in his mind that he should be anti-Zionist. But he says, what can you do? He said, if he davens, I'm not going to stop davening. They, 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 they were at loggerheads. Munkach felt he was the biggest kanoi against Zionism. Um, they, why it is that they were particularly... Sapa itself, the Teitelbaum family, were extraordinarily strong-minded. Whatever, she, whatever they held about, they're very strong-minded. I want to add another piece that's, that people don't realize. Hasidus in Hungary was different than in Poland and in, in or, or in the parts of Lita, the few parts that it took on, or, 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 or in other places. For instance, Ger, Hasidus, is a movement. It's an ideology. It's a way of life. The Rebbe is a Rebbe. You could live 500 miles from there and say I'm a Ger Hasid because it, there was there was a Hasidus. Hasidus was an ideology, a movement with, with a certain way of putting life together. Regine was like that. Chabad was like that. And and, and Lechvich was in, in, in the various... That was like that. The Hungarian Hasidus was nothing like that. If you were a Munkacher and you did not live a Munkach, there's no Munkacher Hasidus. There was a Munkacher Rav. Most of the... They called themselves a Rav. Satman was called Rav. Only in America, where they didn't have that. And if you didn't live in one of the Satman communities... It meant, so, so you, you traveled maybe like, just like we went to Kerestir to get a bracha or to, to write a kvittel. It doesn't make us Kerestir Hasidim. There is no Kerestir Hasidus. He was a holy man, did wonderful things, and, and you know, we get brachas. So people might come for a bracha, they, they, they might, and, but there was no such thing. It was, that's why the typical Hungarian Rebbe was called a Rav, and the Rabbanim had a Hasidus trapping to it, but they never had a Hasidus in the way that the other Rebbes had. So it was a, it, when people speak of Satma Hasidus, there was no Satma Hasidus. It, it, there is a Satma Rav, and it's a community. It's a community with a leader, and when the leaders were not leading, there was no, there was nothing to the. the there was no, nothing different about Munkach Hasidim than Satma Hasidim, except that they disliked each other. But but there wasn't anything in terms of it was communities, and that's a very big difference. It was a very big difference in 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 in, in their in the way how they went about things and so on. Um, I, I want to speak a little bit about Satma. What? It hasn't changed because if you ask a Satma Chas, what? So today, today because towns are very, it used to be, and, and a lot of the fights in towns would be, who does this town belong to? Is this town belong to this Rav or this Rav? Like the main town belonged, so Spinka belonged to Spinka Rav, obviously Munkach belonged to Munkach Rav, but, but who did a suburb belong to? It, it was a dynasty with, so so you could be a Gerachas no matter where you lived, you couldn't be a Munkach if, you, if, if your town was not Munkach. It was a very different type of, of uh, Hasidus, a very different type of, of structure. Um, sorry, what? I'm really getting the nuance here of what a community means versus an ideology. Ger has what to say about how to learn, how to daven, how to act. It, 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 there's a lot in the Hasidus that teaches you about how to, how to put the piece of Yishkai together. So, so a Gera Hasid will learn X 
will daven in a certain way, quicker, longer. It's an ideology or a, a way of a package for Yiddishkeit. There's nothing like that in Satma. The Satma is the Rav, and on particular issues, he had very strong opinions, but that's it. There, there is nothing about Satma Davening. What is Satma Davening? There is nothing you can't... Ger has a very clear message about how to daven. Satma's daven warm and strong, and come to the Rebbe for Yontem. There, there was, it, was, it was a leader of a community. There wasn't an ideology. It was different, very different. And that's why Satma is just a catchword, because nobody else was left from, from Hasidus, and the Satma Rav was a very powerfully charismatic person. All of the communities in, in Williamsburg became satellite communities. Of Satma. Of Satma. That, that's what happened. Um, it was by default the way many yeah they, they, it, it just there was very little leadership left over and everybody lived in one place it wasn't as if everybody lived this one lived in Debrecen this one lived in in Munkach this one lived Makara um, now I, we saw something very fascinating today that was that was um, very interesting we saw one Rebbe, the Rebbe Shaila one figure, whose message was accepting everybody. And I think everybody was moved by it. Um, come in as you are, like she described this woman who came in, and, and Shaila Kastir came the, the lowest of the low, something out of a Kalbach story. The Satmarav comes across to us as being almost the exact opposite. Um, it's very, very judgmental, very powerfully so. And the truth is, Akarish Baruch Hu has many, many midos, and e- each one of them is is a different. If it's genuine, and and if it comes with not out of personal spite or whatever it is, it's something that um, that's needed. Somebody has to say welcome everybody, and somebody has to say this is right and this is wrong. Um, it's true that they went with their temperament, but. I always tell people when we speak about chinuch, a child needs a father and a mother. I said this way before they had other type of arrangements. And 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 the reason is there's one message that's important for a child. There are consequences. If you didn't do X, and we spoke about this half a dozen times, there's no trip for you. Not this or not that. A child also needs a voice. But just this once it's so important and it's and and he wants to come he'll do he'll make up for it afterwards it's healthy and necessary to have those two messages and that's why there's a father and mother sometimes the woman does one of the messages sometimes sometimes the woman does one message and the father and the other. you can ask my when we're not around you can ask Yaakov well, what which one gave which message at what time who but gave the patch who gave the patch and who uh, <laughs> and organized the reconciliations but otherwise than that it, it is and and let's talk about this. And let, let's talk about Zionism because that was the, the sort of the, the the elephant in the closet. And that there was difference between Munkach and Satmar in, in in the Kanoas way. Why did that? Why why did that make the difference between them? I think it was just a personal thing. I, I, I don't think they're so hard to know. They were both they were both vehemently anti-Zionist, and now they didn't have machlokes in something specific. Hard to, hard to hard to believe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not aware of anything. But um, so I, I, let's just go through it. Zionism was a very powerful force, 
And it's something that included much positive and real issues. It's like when somebody hugs you and the person has problems. So there's friendship, there's good, and there are problems. And to get a full picture, you need to get both. Eretz Yisrael, who's not turned on by Eretz Yisrael? That the life here was wretched and people needed to move on, that was obvious. That Kalal Yisrael needed Geula was obvious. That Eretz Yisrael is where every Jew yearns to be, and if we can build it, that's wonderful. Those things, I think, but the message that came along with it in the loudest voice was, we're going to reorganize Judaism. Judaism will stop being a religion, it'll start becoming a nation. And then they said, Hungary has their own country after World War I, Bulgarians have their own country, Jews will have their own country. But our understanding of who we are is not Bulgarians, not Albanians. We are God's people. Eretz Yisrael is conditional. It's not that we live in Eretz Yisrael and we do, it's sometimes better, sometimes worse. Hashem said, part of life is going to be, we're back together when our relationship is okay, and we're not back together when it's not. So Zionism, in its most secular version, was very powerful. And there was a message in Kalal Yisrael, look at what's great about it. Jews finally realized they can't become Hungarians. They must live on their own. There was a powerful positive message we can't assimilate. There was a negative message about what it means to be a Jew. A Jew doesn't mean just living in a particular place and speaking a particular language. It means recognizing you have a covenant with Hashem. And no one person could give that message clearly. Again, I'm reading Hashgacha, how he did it. So one person said, children, Eretz Yisrael. And one person said, what does this all mean? What these people mean is not what it should mean to them. The voices were quite strident. They were difficult. It's not as if I found it easy. But I think without a powerful voice saying, think twice and don't just flow along with it, we might have, who knows how much we would have lost religiously and so on. So you had voices where everybody's welcome, embrace you as you are because Hashem loves you. And a voice that says if Hashem loves you means you have to earn some trust. A message of I accept you as you are is not a positive message unless it comes with and let me tell you what you could be. Somewhere along the line we needed, and I believe Kalal Yisrael is better because we have two plus many messages. Just like we spoke this morning, there needs to be a message that Torah is about understanding and there needs to be a message that's about feeling and living it. And so as difficult as Satma is and as difficult as some of the rhetoric is, but in the big picture it came from the heart of the heart of a person who was a big tzaddik, someone who was a really extraordinary person, recognized by everyone for many things. And for me who's not that, it's still a voice that I need to hear and caution, a sign of caution. One second before you proceed, think twice or three times or four times. So I think for most of Kalal Yisrael it's become a sort of, by having tension, it's like when you stretch a sheet to make it flat, when people pull on different sides, as long as they're not tearing up the sheet, it will become smooth. I think it's a lot of that in the big picture. That's how I would view it. Kalal was a message for them and it's not relevant today. It was 
And you know, it, it, it's, I, I, listen, I certainly don't think it's relevant today because um, even Zionism has, has become a very tempered message. People living in Israel today live in a country, because live in a country. It, it irks me when, when people feel they must spend time talking about it, because I don't think that that's the issue that bothers anybody. You know, when people speak, even if you're a big Hanoi, Israel's a country, people are no longer into the dream of it, it's just Eretz Yisrael is Eretz Yisrael. Um, the one who tells the most people to move to Eretz Yisrael is Chaim Panevsky. People are scared to go in for bracha because every other person, he says, move to Bnei Brak, move to Eretz Yisrael. Um, when I come, he asks me, why am I watching D.C.? Like, I, you know, so I stop coming. I, you know, I'd like, you know, it's, 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 you know I learned my lesson. It, it, it's, but so tachlis, you know, it's, to me, it's dated. It, it's just hanging on to something that's, not because the kanos changed, but that's not the burning issue today. Um, and neither is the army. The army was also part of a very powerful attractor, and you came into the army from, and you left fry. It's, it's not the case anymore. In, in both sides, it doesn't, kids are not goggle-eyed about it, and many non-religious people avoid the army. It, it doesn't have the allure it had, and Baruch Hashem today, many from people do well in the army. So it doesn't have, it, it's, you, you need to keep it track. The Yitzhara doesn't, the Yitzhara doesn't get antiquated. The Yitzhara keeps moving forward. You know, there, there's, there's much more Yitzhara coming up. But, you know, it's, it's, um, that's the way it is. That's the... So, so it, it's it, important to understand that the Hasidus in Hungary took on a flavor that fit the country. The Rebbe was a big tzaddik, made many mofsim, Yeshuas, welcomed the poor and the simple folk, very much closer to what the Baal Shem Tov's kind of original type of Hasidus might have been. And people were that way. And, and by and large, the Hasidus remained that type of thing. It, it was, um, you know, and, and it took on a more communal structure. The Rebbe, the, the Rebbe was the roof of the town. The pe- people came from wide and far to ask for brachas and yeshuas, and and that was that was Hasidus over there. It, it um, we'll see tomorrow. Some sofa was a much more halachist person. They were not into that, and it, it caused some tension. But they, at the end of the day, they they stayed with it. How did Nusach Sfar? Uh... So Nusach Sfar evolved as follows. Hasidim wanted to daven the Rebbes with with um, with having all of the kavanos, all of the thoughts that Kabbalah has to put into davening. So the sefer that lists what a person should be thinking while he's davening was written by the Rizal, who was a Sephardi. So a Rebbe opens up a, a book, uh, uh, the Rizal's sefer. It says in it. You should be thinking these these thoughts at these these words, and it doesn't have those words in a sitter. So what do you do? So they grafted the the, the sfard words into nushashkenas, and they created what's called nushasfard. So it's it's not a it's not a um, it's it's a it's a hybrid to help give people the kavanas they needed to give. Um, you know, so that's when nushasfard came. And it met resistance because it, it was changing things. That's what it was about. Yeah. So for these people, what is it, everybody has their bridge to Hashem. For the simple folk, the miracle worker 
was the bridge to Hashem, and that's why he gave out these kamayas, and he said, "You'll see, you know, you'll 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 be you'll be helped." You were sitting this afternoon, listening to stories. Your eyes were wide open. No, I know. And and and, and so am I. And you know what? It, it, it helps. It's it's you know it, it it's 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 a piece of the puzzle. Um, it, now, when you live off that, that's all it's about. You're missing a lot of other stuff, but it's a piece to it to have this. Is it the same concept as Nechash and Nechoshes? Looking at Hashem. Right, right. It take, listen, it, it takes you out of the usual. And, and it takes you out of your mode of everything is fixed. When you live in a rational world, everything is frozen and fixed. It is what it is, and this is what the doctor said, this is what my boss said, this is what the lawyer said. So so it's helpful every so often to get a shot in the arm and say, AFLPK. When you live just off that, it, it, it removes you from the natural world you should be living in. It turns Yiddishkeit into just kind of a shaman of sorts, and, and it's its problem. That's why Chizkiyo had to break it. Had to break it, right. It says that Moshe Rabbeinu had the snake of compass so that people would look at it, and then they would remind themselves of Hashem. Chizkiyo saw people worshipped it, and it, it became a, a, a worship of, of, of the compass. So he broke it. You know. Okay. Societies were different. They were in 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 Poland. People, there was a certain kanos, um, not kanos in, in in this type of way, but you know it struck a note. People looking for emis. Kutsk, Pshischa was a violently, um, I don't know if I can class the right word. Pshischa, where Kutsk came from, and Ger came from. Their point was be honest with yourself. And sh- and rolling your eyes and shaking back and forth is being dishonest. A hype is also dishonest. So so their their message was be brutally honest with yourself until your last day, because you, you, when you get carried away in an ecstasy, in a religious ecstasy, you might mean it well, but that's not the real you. So, so Poland produced that type, Lithuania, which which was basically Chabad and Lechvich. They produced the more intellectual bent of trying to understand deeper stuff. Each each society, I don't, I don't I'm not sure why, but that that was the, the each society had its own mentality, and that's that's the bent it took. Can I ask on a different topic question? Yeah, it's it's related to what you mentioned before. It's like Peter says, uh, fear the question maybe. What? <laughs> Why is it that Silver Spring produced like Kfiridika type of people? Is there, is there, like, what's it about? You mentioned about Chaim Kanievsky's yes. saying to people different things. A, was there such ever non-Hasidish Rav who, who, who said things like that that we can't explain? And how do you, how do we explain? How do we refer to it? And what does it mean? Rav Chaim Kanievsky says to a person, you should move to blame. What does it mean that? So, uh, we should grow a beard. Watch all these stuff. How do we? How do you understand? I mean, it's it's. Was there anyone who did it before him? It certainly was not. It was not part of the literature world. 
It is kind of new in that way. Chavetz Chaim is mentioned. Chavetz Chaim would say sometimes things that people didn't know what he wanted. I, I mean, people come back with stories that, uh, you know, Chavetz Chaim said. But by and large, it, it was a rational approach. Um, and if a person wants that approach, he shouldn't go to Chaim Kanievsky. On the other hand, um, I'll tell you a story that, that would that would explain the two halves of it. There was somebody who had a, a problem, a child with, with, with severe issues that needed some sort of chemical treatment, which which was a real question, should they do it, should they not do it? And it was like a, a sort of a, a Yiddish type of question, should, should, should they administer a certain type of drug to a child? So somebody went to Yasef Hutna, and Rav Hutnas thought about it and he said, I can't decide this, ask Rav Shach. So he went to Yasef Shach, Rav Shach thought a moment, and he said, yes or no, whatever he said. So the boy's father said, can you explain to me the basis for it? He said, I can't explain, go to Rav Hutna to explain. So he went to Rav Hutna, and Rav Hutna explained it to him. So he said, I don't understand. The Rosh Hashiva explained me what Rav Shach said to him. So why, why did you send me there? He said, I can give you the rational background for both sides. To make a decision, it, it, I, I, I don't have the ability to weigh the sides. Rav Shach says, He has an instinct about what's right, but he can't explain it. I can explain it to you, but I trust his instinct. And there is something, it's like, it, it's like, in, you know, it's like in business. You have the guy teaching a business course, and he can really explain why a certain deal worked, a certain deal not. That person is usually not a millionaire, you know, it's, unless he's teaching in Hungary and he gets a million florin. But, but, but he's, he's, not, he's not usually, and, and, you have, and, and, and a good businessman has a good, a good sense, and you'll ask him to explain, and he says, because it smelled right. Well, how does, what, 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 how does it smell right? Well, I just felt that it was right. So, so there's an certain type of instinctive, and you can choose. If a, a person can, you know, certain decisions a person um, chooses, and you, you choose. Do you want a rational approach? Go ask somebody who's going to weigh it that way. Do you want something beyond? Go to Chaim Kanievsky. And it, yes, it's, we, we never, we, I don't think we ever had anything like that, but it is what it is. We have, I, I was told over the story with my wife, um, and, and I told you the story of, I don't know who's, I went to Bnei Brak as a bacher with a, with my roommate, Rabbi Falshmulevitz. He's a rabbi in Toronto, was a Pansheletz's um, nephew. So we had a list of what to do in Bnei Brak. We go to Stipler, we go here, we go there. We went to Stipler, Stipler couldn't hear. And you had to yell and scream. So we go in and, um, he, yes, his name was Shmulevitz. He said, oh, you're Chaim's nephew, Rabbi Chaim Shabbat's nephew. So he says, yes. Oh, very nice. How is he doing? How does he feel? Then he turns to me and he says, you also. So I was really lit back and I said, I'm going to tell him no. So I'm going to have to scream and yell no. To try and scream Lopiansky that he could understand, there's no way in the world can understand. It'll take up five minutes of it and I'm out. What a waste of time. So I nodded. Then I had a piece of Torah I had prepared to write and written and he looked at it, he commented on it. We, we asked for Sfarim, he gave it to us, out, in and out, and that was it. That was the end of the story. A year later, I got engaged to my wife, and after the engagement, we, we took a walk, and we said, she said, she's going to Bnei Brak. her family lives in Bnei Brak. 
And I said, yeah, I was there a year ago, and I was by the stipler. And I just realized I had become a nephew of the stipler, of, of Reb Chaim Shalavitz by marriage. I was engaged. So, and not only that, I became a nephew of the stipler also through, through this engagement. I, so I told this story to Reb Nachum, it's my Rebbe, as, as Litvak as they come. And he said, let me explain to you the meaning of this story. He says, it's not that when you walked in the stipler saw a sign, nephew of Chaim Shalavitz, and he, and, he, and he forwarded information to you. He said, when a big person says something, those words don't go to waste. They are. He said, the same thing happened with me. I came to the Mir Yeshiva. I was a young boy. That's Reb Nachum. Reb asked me, who are you? And I said, my name is, 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 is Nachum from Truk. I'm a son of Trukarov. It's a son of a Trukarov. Trukarov is like a son to me. You'll be my grandson. He said, all he meant was to be nice to me. I became his grandson. You know, he married Reb Lezudel's granddaughter. <laughs> so he said, it's not as if they have this voice or vision. When a big person says something, those words come true. So, so that's our perspective, and it's as, as you know, that, that's our perspective on these things. And you know, you said that that's the way Rashi says it, right? That, that something that in the phone is a It's a good Chazal The Chazal, the says in a few places, nevu is a The person said something unintended, but Hashem put words in his mouth, and. When, when you don't have a rational way, a big person says something. I, I mean, you know, when we were deciding about moving to Silver Spring, we decided, I'd ask the people who, and it was a very hard decision, and I decided to ask Shach. And simply because I wanted somebody who could just say it. And without having, I just needed something to say it. And three times, you know, Shach said, come, and then I got a message, he's, he's not well, he had an operation, and he was really not doing well, and, and I didn't go, and that was that. But, you know, the people I spoke to, it, you know, felt very strong that it's a good idea, but it was a very big decision, and, and um, so, so you know, the people you asked me, you just... Uh... I had a story. I went to the Rahmat of Rebbe in Bar Park. Yeah. And I went with a kvittel with all the names of my family. I went, I, well, my, at the time I only had a few kids. My parents, grandparents. And he read, it was a list of about 15 names. And he stopped at my grandfather's name. He turned to me and he says, so how was Yisrael Nassim? I happened to see my grandfather just had open heart surgery. And there was no way he could have known that. I didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell the guy nothing. And I said, he's okay. And then he continued reading the names. And when you talk about the instinct, he had to have had an instinct. Uh, same to Chavetz Chaim, I heard this from my Rebbe, Rebbe Zedel Epstein. He was my Rebbe in 11th grade, 12th grade. Very, very formative influence on me. He was a bacher alert in yeshivas in Gradna, and he went to Chavetz Chaim to ask for brachas. He, you know, so he wrote down his whole family. He had a sister who had moved to America before they moved, and she was not religious anymore at the time. He didn't know about it. Nobody knew the family about it. So he gave the Chavetz Chaim the whole list. The Chavetz... He didn't know himself. He didn't know. He, she'd moved to America. She didn't tell her parents. She had married somebody who was less religious. They became not Shabbos Shabbos. That was it. She later, in later years, they came around again. The Chavetz Chaim went through the entire list. He came to her name and he said, not everybody deserves a bracha. And he went on to the next. He told it to himself. So I, I said, the, the real issue is, it's not that these things don't exist. The question is, what should the Yiddishkeit be built on? In other words, should the vast majority of it be the rational process of thinking things through and making decisions? 
or depending on a gyrol. And there was a fellow in Eshat Torah. There was a fellow in Eshat Torah once who, who a, a young man who I had the misfortune of having him the first year I was teaching. He got engaged. He he was very from, but but his midas had been left way behind. His his, his religiosity came way before that, and he was he was he was a, he had a very extreme personality. So, as a month after his wedding, his wife came running that there were real issues there. One of them was he felt that it says in the Mishnah, "Do not speak much with a woman, including your wife." So. Not only did he speak with him, like past the salt, he would grunt and motion like your middle school or something, and it began to create some issues at home. You understand that this is the type of thing that leads to, to issues. You know, some like, like what? Yeah, some, some wives think some wives wish it, wish it, but he was. So I got hold of him, and I, I let him have it, and he was very upset with me. He also didn't buy his wife jewelry because it's a waste of money. She was a spidey girl, simple wonderful sweet person so my wife took hold of him she put him into a cab went down with him to the jeweler and had him buy some jewelry and I let him have it about the talking and he was very angry with me he avoided me like the plague you know he told me the Vilna Goyen writes that he doesn't waste any words so I said the Vilna Goyen I said you're so far from the Vilna Goyen I said the G'daylam I know all have very normal family lives and they talk with their wives and it's a normal life when you'll be holding way past there uh, then, then there'll, there'll be the villain. I, I, no, he, I got, whatever. So he avoided me. Then talk about it. Whatever. Fine. One day he comes to me and he says, Baruch Hashem. What? I don't know. A few months later he comes with a big smile. Baruch Hashem, my problems have been solved. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what happened? He said they went to a makubal, and he said the real issues in their marriage is because the gematria and the names don't work out well. So he added a name, subtracted the name, changed the name, and now the gematrias are okay. So I said to him, Uri, I said, I don't understand about these things much, but I sure hope it doesn't work. I said, your least chance of becoming a mensch was when you have to work it out with your wife and understand another person. I said, if this works, we, we got around the last hump of becoming a mensch, and you'll never be a mensch. I said, this is terrible. I, you know, I, I said, you know, it's it's a... So, so the question is, do you, I, I, you know, how much of it, our sense of it is, unless a person is a living malach, he should be acting responsibly, thoughtfully, this. There are things in life when you say, this is Hashem's hands, and you look for, for something out of it. A chassidim, you know, and, and there's is, there is room. So they say, we are too tachlis oriented. Where's the Rebbe Shalom the world? Some things have to be left. Uh, let, let's take a look. Institutions, yeshivas. No yeshiva has the money in the bank account before they start. There's always an element of trust. Where's the gap between being irresponsible and trusting in Hashem? It's hard. It's it's not easy. But no yeshiva ever said, "Well, I now have enough money for X, Y." Those yeshivas that did it that way were never successful. People had to push hard and have a, a vision of what's right to do. And then sort of, you know, believe and understand if it's right. But what's the gap? You know, when does it become something that you're just living on miracles and depending on miracles? And when is it? And when is it too balabatish? It's just like you know, I, I worked for, for a certain. I, I did some work. I did some teaching for a fund that somebody left over. It's overfunded. 